Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. We welcome you to Bite Into It, where we talk tech, computing, the internet, uh, all of the stuff that um, you need to know about on a Wednesday night. Uh, this evening on the desk, distributed around town, we have uh, Joe Eaton. Uh, Joe, how are you? Good evening. I'm doing all right. Coming to you from my lounge. Got the uh, extra pair of fluffy socks on. I do actually. It's um, yeah, it got really cold about quarter to six as soon as the sun went down. Uh, we also have Dan Morganti. Dan, how are you? Yeah, really well, and I can confirm it is freezing. Were you, were you outside today? Were you uh, yes, uh, I was. putting I was, things together? I was driving a forklift out in uh, the freezing cold, and it was cold and also muddy, but definitely cold. Uh, you didn't get wet, did you? Uh, a little bit. It rained a little bit in the morning, so I got a little bit uh, drizzled on. It wasn't that bad. Uh, uh, well, thank you for making time to be with us tonight. Oh, absolutely. Um, I'll be with you also. Uh, my name is Warren Davies. Um, on the show tonight, uh, it would not have escaped your uh, attention that we are doing things a little bit differently uh, at the moment under COVID-19. And uh, one of the things that has changed is how we interact with uh, doctors and how we check up on our health. Um, we are going to have a look at how, uh, I guess, maybe we're... Um, being less attentive towards our health, uh, we're going to have a chat with uh, Chris Bain, who has uh, been looking at that uh, as part of his work at Monash. That'll be coming up uh, in the show shortly. And also, um, one of the things that we are taking advantage of at this time is podcasts. And uh, one of Triple R's favourites, uh, Beth AQ, is going to be joining us uh, a little bit later in the show to talk about um, her work with um, Wheeler Centre and Signal Boost which is a great initiative to uh, match uh, mentors to people who are just getting started in uh, podcasting. So uh, that'll be later in the show. But before that, uh, there is a, a bit of news that uh, we wanted to draw to your attention. Uh, Dan, there's been um, a bit of a ruckus at Facebook. What, what's going on there? Yeah, so Facebook employees have staged a virtual walkout in a dissenting move after Zuckerberg refused to remove a post by Trump. Um, the message was inflammatory and incited violence, uh, and the Zuck went on to Fox News to defend his decision of all places. Um, he's saying that Facebook wants to promote as much expression as possible. Uh, this protest comes after reports that there has been internal strife at Facebook for a while, with more people calling for, for diversity among higher-ups at the company, as well as uh, calls to fire uh, Facebook's vice president of global policy, Joel Kaplan, who is seen as being a strong conservative voice within the company. Strong. Um, yeah, he's been under a, a fair bit of pressure um, with what's been going on you know, in response to, to George Floyd's death. Um, he also, uh, I think, got flagged for um, uh, on Twitter for um, a, a couple of tweets that were uh, inaccurate, yeah. and uh, people were encouraged to, to sort of check the facts on that one. Well, it stings um, a little bit more because the post in question on Facebook was actually a tweet that Trump reposted to Facebook, and Twitter and Twitter uh, took the initiative and flagged it, and um, at least did the minimum amount of effort. They didn't remove it or anything; they just flagged it. But yeah, that's uh, why they're coming under so much scrutiny. Mm. It's interesting. I think. Um, 
uh, in the past, we've had people talk about sort of uh, design issues they have or policies around privacy and, and so forth and, and general kind of uh, concern about uh, practices um, at the, the um, sort of tech giant. But um, I don't think we've ever seen protests um, and, and people kind of um, uh, taking it to this level. So um, it's interesting, interesting times that we're in. Um, Joe, there's also been a, a, another thing related to um, – uh, to uh, protests around the world at the moment uh, about uh, black deaths in custody and, and, and treatment generally. Um, yeah. What's been happening with Blackout Tuesday? So yesterday, um, in a response to the police murder and brutality against people of colour and kind of as an act of solidarity encouraged by music industry and other um, friends, so I posted a square image that was completely blacked out and I used the hashtag Black Lives Matter and this is on Instagram. Mm. Uh, and then I posted a separate post with some actions that could be taken by us white people as well. Mm. And I quickly found out that by using the Black Lives Matter hashtag, me and millions of other people were drowning out important information that was needed on the American protest front, front lines. So then changed the hashtag to um, Blackout Tuesday, only to find mm. out that um, – those deleted hashtags were still being indexed by Instagram and still um, drowning out all the important information that needed to reach the protesters. So deleted the image entirely. And um, it's it's been a really interesting process of sort of realising when you're wrong and um, and listening and, and um, you know, taking on new information. And there's no shame in being wrong and admitting when you're wrong. And mm. it's... It's also been an interesting um, sort of unintentional censorship, I suppose. Yeah, I guess not, not a lot of people who aren't uh, um, sort of working in activist circles or, or literally out there on the street doing these things on a regular basis would understand, myself included, and um, uh, many of us listening, that um, – Hashtags are a sort of a vital way to collect information and kind of organise and, yeah. and, and sort of point things to people. We, our, our most common interaction with it is to kind of show solidarity and and, um, uh, and I guess just be heard and um, show that it matters. But, um, yeah, interesting that kind of that sort of collision happens like this and, and, and really unfortunate. Uh, yeah. One of the... What are the what are the better ways to kind of post and what what suggestions would you have about if you wanted to sort of show solidarity but you weren't sort of necessarily out there trying to pick up a grid coordinate or, or or find a particular protest group? Just listen to people of colour and um, amplify their voices. Mm. Great. Repost their messages. Read. Don't don't be afraid to admit when you're wrong. Mm. Good advice. Um, uh, another group of people that are uh, also taking advice um, uh, is here in Australia. Um, there's been a bit of a review of uh, uh, preparedness for cybercrime and um, security around several uh, large government departments. Um, only one of the federal government's largest agencies um, has fully applied the um, Australian Signals Directorate Essential 8 to some of its most important systems, the uh, auditor has found. Um so the finding is uh, part of a, uh, an interim um, report on um, financial controls and um, uh, security at uh, many of these major entities. Um, so we're talking about um, some of the organisations, uh, or actually I'll talk about the um, the eight measures um, or 
Um, so we've got uh, application whitelisting, uh, patching operating systems, patching applications, uh, restricting admin privileges, uh, multi-factor authentication. Surprised to see uh, um, only two organizations were compliant around multi-factor authentication. Um, 16 uh, agencies were not. Um, Probably the, the area where the, the major agencies did do okay uh, was uh, restricting admin privileges, which uh, does help. But uh, generally across the across the board, um, uh, even only six organisations were daily backing up their services, um, which is which is crazy. Um, so yeah, um, that will be interesting to see uh, how people uh, and and agencies respond to that. It's places like the Tax Office, um, uh, Services Australia, um, Department of Defence. Um, yeah, interesting. It just seems that every time we hear something about the Australian government and technology, they are just falling behind. It's never, never anything um, progressive. It's always oh, they're they're trailing to keep up. It's it's always a little bit disheartening when you, when it's the government. Yeah, I, I kind of even even with the. Um the the uh, the COVID tracing app. Um, I felt the implementation of it was was not strong, and they could have done things a lot better. Um, maybe a little bit of credit to them. There wasn't a lot of time, and they're acting sort of um, with the best interests of the community at heart, by and large, um, yep. with some kind of um, reservations around that. But um, yeah, well, the first in the first couple of weeks. Um, excluding New South Wales, there, there were some, um, it looked like some good wins and people or clusters were being tracked down, but uh, I haven't really heard much uh, about it since, about how well it's doing. And they only just recently fixed some of the issues with uh, iOS and so having having to have the phone active. So totally agree with you, Dan. It's a shame. Yeah. Um, there is some uh, kind of cool uh, old school news around the um, uh, a new product as well though, Dan. So what's, what's this about? Yeah, so the Galaxy Z Flip. Uh, old school in name sounds like a 90s uh, after school cartoon and old school in design. <laughs> it's a uh, flip phone um, with a folding screen um, and it will set you back $2,200. It's, uh, hey. yeah. Wow. It's, uh, by all accounts, it's a little bit more sturdy than the other Galaxy folding designs um, and offers just as much power and support. But, um, yeah, the it's got a rock-solid hinge uh, and it is able to close up so you aren't able to see instant notifications and things like that. It's, it's, um, it's your, your choice to look up. Uh, any notifications or anything you might have. So it's cool design with, uh, you know, some, I say old school, but it's only, what, like 15 years old sensibility when uh, we, mm. that Razer phone came out. I had one. It was fantastic. Um, but, yeah, it's uh, it's taking some um, some old school sensibilities and adding it with a modern twist. It's uh, just a hefty price tag, that's all. Yeah, it's kind of um, – there's a great picture here uh, on the site um, where someone's popping it in the leather pouch. It's kind of got that uh, Nokia 5110 kind of like pouch yeah. vibe going on, sort of like uh, – Maybe yeah. these will become as ubiquitous as the 3310 or something like that. I can, I can <laughs> see it stopping a lot of um, the old screen smashing. Yeah, and it looks like a, a 3DS, a Nintendo – uh, handheld gaming system as well, which that's just that's just what it looks like to me. Nice. Yeah. Um, another thing that's quite nice um, 
one of the things that has happened uh, during COVID-19 times is the, the obvious restriction of uh, air flights. And um, there's probably been a big contributor to, to some of the cleaner air that we've been seeing. And um, that is a good thing. Um, it's been sad to see not a lot of interest in uh, sort of alternatives to jet fuel, um, but I was excited today to read a piece about uh, Lanzajet, which is a, um, work, a startup working on both uh, jet services and renewable jet fuel. Um, so the Lanzatech have actually been working uh, over the past 15 years uh, on technologies that turn carbon emissions into ethanol. Uh, that could be used for chemicals and for fuel. And uh, just recently, uh, I think yesterday, um, they announced the spin-out um, Lanzajet, um, uh, along with a variety of um, corporate partners um, from around the world. Um, so, yeah, there's commitments from uh, a number of firms um, in, in Japan and Canada to provide um uh, the carbon emissions and the inputs to, to actually make this fuel. Um, and they've got backing from, uh, I think, uh, a major energy company who've invested $85 million to back the first pilot and to help scale to development uh, for Lanzajet, which is uh, a good thing. Um, so I think that'd be great. I mean, it's great if you can um, firstly kind of work with a less polluting fuel like uh, ethanol, but if you can also turn carbon emissions into that, if there would be a way to kind of trap carbon emissions somehow. Um, and turn these into fuel, um, it's kind of a win-win. Uh, I can't really see the downside to this. I mean, it'd be great if we use less jet travel in the first place, but um, I think when we have to do it, uh, be good to be as efficient as possible. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Nice. Uh... This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Now, you might be wondering uh, in the current situation what to do if you uh, step your toe uh, or if you've got sniffles or um, a host of other issues uh, relating to um, what you would usually do, go and see a, a GP um, and maybe get it checked out. Um, we're seeing a bit of a decline in that and potentially uh, an increase in other technology uh, around our health. And to get to the bottom of that, we're now joined by Chris Bain, who is the Professor of Practice in Digital Health uh, in the Faculty of Information Technology at Monash University. Um, Chris, thanks for joining us on the show tonight. No worries. Thanks for having me. Uh, have you been sick yourself um, over the past couple of months? Have you had to kind of figure out what you should be doing in this context or uh, uh, have no, you been lucky? I been lucky in that sense, but my daughter was actually unwell a um, weekend or two ago and we needed to get her tested for COVID. So rang the GP, said, how are you doing it? Referred us to the local hospital. So I went through that process, which was interesting. Mm. Is is there kind of a, a, a meta trend going on here where people who would usually go to a GP just kind of turn up or, or maybe sort of ring at the last minute and then see if they could get an appointment? Are we doing things differently? Um, yeah, there's, yeah, there's signs of, the, of something different happening for sure um, in as much as uh, be it GP consultations or certain conditions like road trauma uh, cases or people in violent assaults and so forth. There's evidence of various things like that are actually um, happening less and that's from some published information, from speaking to people in the industry, um, also evident in countries overseas and how much of that is, you know, conditions not happening. So maybe, you know, people staying home, so there's less car accidents and alcohol-related violence, that might make sense. But 
things like heart attacks and strokes and so forth keep happening. There's no obvious reason why we'd have less of some of those things, yet they seem to be some of the reports we're seeing in, in the health industry. And, and how, how are people accounting for that at the moment? Is there, I guess, not enough information to kind of figure it out or are there any theories about why health uh, incidents overall are, uh, have decreased? Yeah, I don't think anyone has a conclusive answer and they're not going to really be able to until after we sort of return to normal, in quotes. Um, I mean, it's sufficiently concerning to the health system in Australia that you've seen, you know, the president of the College of GPs, you've seen Brendan Murphy, you've seen the health minister all making a point of sending that message that, you know, if you have a significant health condition, don't put off contacting the health system, be it your GP or the hospital, just because of COVID, we're still here to treat you for those things. But to know for sure with the data, we're not going to know until we, we sort of get back to a, a more normal situation. Mm. I've had um, a, a little bit of uh, contact with um, someone I've been working with where they believe that um, uh, people are just trying to hold off uh, doing what they would usually do, um, uh-huh. whether it's sort of face-to-face consultations um, uh, or something that they would usually rely on that uh-huh. kind of contact with, um, hoping to just kind of get by. Is yes. that? Do, do you believe that might be happening or uh, is that a good thing? Um, what, what are your thoughts there? Oh, I believe that might be happening. Uh, in essence, is it a good thing? Sometimes definitely not. So I know um, from people I sort of have some work with, published a report recently looking at GP consultations and things like, you know, screenings for cervical cancer and so forth. Uh, there's less of that. So that's a bad thing. People would usually get a pap smear or some other test as part of a preventative or screening program and they're not doing that, then they run the risk of actually getting those conditions. I think a little more concerning is stuff where there's not really a um, an option. So things like, you know, the heart attacks or angina or other serious conditions that would usually force someone to seek care because they make you feel pretty sick. It's what's sort of happening to that group and what does that look like once the dust settles? Mm, interesting. Um, I'm reading a, a piece here, um, uh, just some information that, that got sent through in relation to this. Um, from a, a digital health perspective, um, how much better could we be doing if simple uh-huh. things like um, checking checking blood pressure or checking blood sh- uh, blood sugar or uh-huh. you know, other sort of you know, vital signs related to our health could be done um, uh, differently? Are, are these the kinds of things that we should be kind of pushing and saying there are um, uh, there are IoT devices and uh, and measures and, and trackers and, and things out there that we could be using, but we haven't had the pressure to this point to, to integrate them more into the health system? Yeah, and certainly in a long-term sense, absolutely. I, I mean, I think we should be pushing that. That's A lot of that stuff is the essence of digital health. Uh, our reality at the minute is, with a few exceptions, though, that most of this sort of virtual care that's going on is really just in the realm of voice and video. And a few people have, you know, inadvertently stumbled into chat. But there's already, you know, fairly mature products in some cases in other countries that will measure, you know, a cardiograph on a phone that will measure all sorts of other things on a phone or through an app. There's certainly prototypes, if not actual implemented products that um, anal- collect and analyse um, heart sounds digitally, that collect and analyse breath sounds digitally. 
So when you can get to a place where on top of your video consultation where you can speak to the patient, get some sense of how sick they are, you can also down the wire, if you like, you know, hear in quotes their, their chest and their heart sounds and get their blood pressure and their oximetry, their blood oxygen level, that starts to really flesh out true virtual care that's safe and in, in an increasing range of situations. So it would have been lovely to have that here in Australia now in preparation for the pandemic, but the, the upside at least is we've sort of broken through, crashed through a barrier around more broad telehealth usage in a basic sense because of COVID. Um, so for many of us who work in this sphere, there's lots of positives in that, but a few concerns too. What, what, what does uh, telehealth actually uh, denote for, for people who aren't familiar with that term? What, what is telehealth? Yeah, yeah. look, the terminology is a bit up for grabs, but, you know, in essence it's um, a remote consultation facilitated by a phone line or a computer video session is a really simple way to describe it. Um, and I think I haven't actually looked at the rules about what's being funded at the minute, but, you know, that kind of physically seeing and talking to a health professional I think is embedded versus just doing a, a chatbot question and answer online. Um, but, yeah, that, that's a pretty simple way to think of it. And if you, um, I, I guess if you are, uh, are able to um, uh, sort of requisition any of these tools and, and kind of put them into practice, if you were the, the sort of virtual health minister, what, what are some of the things that we should really be banging the drum for to, to get out there? Um, obviously not sort of under current circumstances, but for the next time around where, um, you know, it is hard to, to get to a GP uh -huh. or, or even uh -huh. it just doesn't make much sense. What, what are yeah. maybe two or three things that make a lot of sense to have out there? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think the very first thing is, is again, assuming we get to a relative normality later this year where life in many ways goes back to the normal, the first thing is for us to have a look at, at what's happened with this sort of enforced rollout of telehealth and make sure it's been safe. There'll be times when it hasn't been safe in, in various dimensions, learn the lessons from it, what's been good, what's been bad, and leverage that into a greater level of telehealth than we've done before and better informed. But off that, that subsequent sort of base, I think things like, you know, either the patient measuring their blood pressure and it automatically coming into an app which can automatically download its data or, or allow a remote clinician to visualise their data, that kind of thing. The same with basic things like blood oxygen levels and pulse rates, which often go with just the blood pressure measurement and the oxygen level. That kind of stuff would really, um, you know, again, proving it be safe, it, it really would mark a step change in many conditions. You know, I used to see people in their homes as a practitioner many years ago and a number of times you had to send somebody to hospital just because you lacked one piece of information like their oxygen level. You know, there's a lot of people with chronic respiratory conditions who have who are on oxygen, who are always out of breath. You've got no metric, especially if you don't know them well, to to get a sense of are they more out of breath today than they were yesterday, and that can be the difference between an ambulance call and an ambulance transfer and a stay in the emergency department. So, things like that can be very valuable. Mm. Um, um, so, these are obviously. Um 
like technologies that we're using for the moment because of the situation. Do you see them being adopted and implemented uh, later on when they're not necessary, but maybe it's advantageous to use them? I hope so. I mean, I've I've sort of written some words around this. There's an analogy I've used where, you know, if if 100 k's an hour is flat out alley health, um, we were trundling along in Australia at sort of 10 k's an hour, and one of the biggest barriers was actually who's going to pay for those services. Why will a busy practitioner make the time to do that if they're not remunerated, which is a fair point. Um, we've suddenly shot up to like 90 k's an hour going hell for leather, but with relative lack of governance and, and um, you know, safety checks, if you like, along the way. I, I suspect we will end up back and hopefully around the 40, 50 k mark, but in a really safe and well understood environment. Um, because there's certainly, you know, if you look at our historic use, plenty of opportunities to use it more. Um, how, uh, uh, how do you imagine your ideal practice would be if, if you were consulting um, from sort of the end of the year? What, what does kind of um, an ideal doctor surgery look like? Yeah, well, it's been a long time for me, so I won't presuppose what it, what it uh, would look like for many people. And it will vary a little bit between general practice and special practice and hospital. So if we look at a general practice, I would imagine if you're inclined to use technology more, and not all GPs are, that, that you'll have a greater mix of how you can see patients because it's a viable model for your practice. And so maybe you will do a lot more telehealth because it's funded appropriately, because you're given access to safe tools that the IT industry and the health IT industry trust because it fits neatly into how you do your day-to-day job, because the records it generates could be seamlessly integrated into your main record-keeping system, et cetera. I think for many forward-thinking GPs, that would be a really good outcome. Mm, And good for the system and good for patients. So how? what's the the outlook for this kind of funding then from either third parties or government? That's, that's a really interesting question. Um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of this will sit with government. I mean, I, I'm fairly apolitical and I don't really have many qualms with many of the things our government have done through the pandemic because the proof's in the pudding. You know, we've, we've got away as a country very well from a health perspective, so it's very hard to be critical. But there will be a huge question there about you know, the amount of funding that's plausible going forward for these telehealth items, I, I, I just don't think it's realistic that the same level of funding will be available once we're back in, again, this, quote, normal situation. I'm hoping desperately we don't go back to the trickle, the relative trickle of funding or lack of clarity of incentives that existed beforehand. Um, I'd like to think the most likely outcome is a middle position having sort of learned the lessons of these few months. Mm. Well, I think there's a, a lot to kind of chew on there. Yeah, it's a difficult um, it's a difficult challenge. A real opportunity, but a difficult challenge. I mean, some of those things I'd written about in this space, you know, 
it's unclear what range of technology people have been using with these telehealth items. Certainly there's lots of phone, there's perhaps some more well-established video consultation things. I hope not too many people used Zoom and I hope not too many consultations got Zoom bombed. Um, so, you know, there's all those sort of questions we need to have a look at, plus that on the health side, so not just the technology side, but did we basically provide a safe service by switching so much to telehealth through this time? And that comes back to what we were discussing before. It's only really afterwards we'll be able to look at all of the figures and look at things like death rates, for instance. You know, have we had a whole bunch of extra deaths in conditions that people wouldn't usually die from because they avoided care or, or the current models, telehealth models, couldn't quite support them? So, again, a lot of work to do once we have a bit of air to breathe, a bit of headspace. Is there any mm. indication of what those numbers are looking like now in these early stages? Yeah, I mean, you know, the set of figures I've seen, uh, which I've written about with the you know, Republic uh, survey of a couple of hundred GPs describing sort of 30% drops in income, so income as a proxy for activity. Um, again, a lot of it's anecdotal, but there's a lot of people reporting it anecdotally, a lot of people from across the health industry at a personal level, at a, you know, public blog article kind of level, too many to believe there's not actually been this real change. Um, but yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Chris. Uh, it's been a, um, yeah, really enlightening uh, discussion on all this telehealth business. Um, this is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. And we are now uh, joined on air by Triple uh, R regular uh, Beth AQ, um, who's here to talk to us about uh, a great project at the Wheeler Centre uh, where she's doing a bit of work uh, called Signal Boost. It's a, uh, a program to connect mentors to aspiring young podcasters. And we're now joined on air by Beth. How are you doing? Hey, good. Thanks for having me. No trouble at all. Um, Podcasting, um, I, I kind of feel it, it's hard to tell. Like the more you listen to things, or the more you see things, the more you kind of notice them. Um, it's hard to know whether there's just a, a lot more of it out there, um, and, and a lot more sort of great local content. Um, have you found with working with the Wheeler Centre and and with Signal Boost in particular, there's a lot more people kind of putting their hands up at the moment, or is it a steady stream of um, people interesting in the in the media? Well, I mean, I feel like there's that thing of being in lockdown and everyone's like, what could I do to, you know, to how can I spend my time or make a podcast? And people are like, no, you don't need to do that. But I mean, I feel like, I feel like there's been a lot of people in the podcasting game for a long time, but I mean, yeah, I think it's what we're really interested in is like, who are the people that are making the podcasts and just making the form accessible to uh, people that have been traditionally unable to enter into the the market, really. I kind of um, tend to assume 
maybe uh, erroneously that um, making a podcast is easy and it's not too hard to record something and get it up on Spotify or, or another platform. Um, what are some of the harder things when you talk about, uh, I guess, creating a, an inclusive um, ecosystem for podcasts? What, what are some of the barriers and, and what are some of the ways around getting people into it that, that excite you or interest you? Yeah, well, I mean, I feel like there are so many podcasts out there that are just you know, not kind of recorded well or people don't have the technical skills to be able to make it sound good. Um, but I think that, you know, there are real basics that people kind of need to hone before making a really good podcast. And, and part of that, I think, is really thinking about uh, what makes your idea different or what makes um, you the right person to tell the story and, and thinking about who you might need to be able to tell that story or if you want to collaborate with people or, you know, thinking about those bigger questions but I suppose yeah something that I'm really interested in is thinking about who has access to these resources and this knowledge to be able to do these things because I think if you look at which podcasts are topping certain podcasting charts you often see that these podcasts are made in association with really established institutions and I think that I think that, yeah, I'm just interested in kind of breaking this idea that podcasting is an accessible medium because, like, on one hand, yes, it is because everybody can do it and upload it to iTunes, but that doesn't mean that anyone's going to listen to it. So mm. I think, yeah, this program is really about being able to, like, equip people with the skills to be able to go out there and, and yeah, do it themselves. And it seems like there's, like, if uh, the the Signal Boost program has a lot of aspects to it and there's uh, a lot of there's it says there's a series of inte- intensive workshops um what what's covered in these workshops how many are there and yeah what's covered yeah so i mean the nuts and bolts of the program is that as you said it's a tailored mentorship opportunity which yeah is really focused on elevating new voices and new ideas in audio storytelling and the intensive workshop aspect of it you know we're looking at doing these over six a six month period Um, We're very interested in learning what participants want to learn and be able to be responsive and flexible. But, I mean, there are definitely kind of basics that we're really interested in covering and that might be like, you know, how you go from having this big idea to refining it into something that you can think about in terms of how many episodes you're going to have, When, like what's the release schedule going to look like. You know, we're interested in asking questions around ethics, like, you know, what are kind of ethical considerations you should take into account when you're creating a new podcast. And that might mean, you know, thinking about whose stories you're telling or who's telling the stories and, you know, and then more like, I suppose, one-on-one aspects of it is like how you do an interview and then how you script for writing for the ear and sound design and being able to like mix and edit and know how to use your recording gear. But I think, yeah, something that is really interesting for me for this program is that we really want to be able to tailor it to what the people that are going through the program want. And that might mean that they have a particular interest in sound design, or it might mean that they're really interested in making a fictional podcast um, and just being able to find the right people to be able to teach them in a way that is going to be useful for what they want to do. And so oh, what's involved in applying, Beth? Yeah, so, I mean, to apply, uh, applicants need to submit uh, a short creative pitch to uh, a theme that we've created called public. Um, so one part of it is like a written outline of what your idea could be and the second part of it is a creative audio response which would be in the form of like a trailer or a teaser for that idea. Uh, and the participants don't necessarily need to go on to work on this into 
um, a larger idea throughout the program, but that kind of application process is more for us to be able to get a sense of an applicant's ability to respond to a prompt and to be able to think laterally. So, you know, those pitches could be, uh, you know, it could be serious journalism or it could be some YA fiction or it could be, you know, a weird experimental sound art piece or, you know, kind of anything in between. Fantastic. So um, is this the second year it's been running? Yeah, so Signal Boost was piloted for the first time in 2019 and it was done on, a, you know, quite a smaller scale and it was done with uh, the participants were past winners of an earlier podcast initiative by the Wheeler Centre called So You Think You Can Pod. Um, and yeah, it was it was kind of done on a smaller scale, but we are still working with some participants that went through the program last year. Um, we were particularly we're working with um, two amazing participants called Sylvie and Izzy, um, who last year when they went through the program, they worked on a podcast called Pill Pop, which is essentially an audio trip for the chronically ill. So they're both uh, chronically ill and each week they have a different person on. Um, and it's a yeah sonic journey through what chronic illness feels and sounds like. And yeah, we've just kind of signed them to to do a co-production. So yeah, I think that's a really a good um, thing that you can that we can hopefully be able to work with people after the program finishes if they want, but also there's no obligation to produce things with us and that being able to learn skills and be able to go out and do it on your own is just as is just as valuable. And there's there's a mentor aspect as well. How are mentors chosen? Like if I was to apply, would I be able to choose Joe Rogan as my mentor? (laughs) (laughs) I (laughs) I mean, I think it's really open to, you know, we're very much open to hearing what participants want, but then also there's a bit of like logistics involved, like who's available. Um, But I think, you know, we're really able to kind of look at the knowledge and and networks that we have and and try to pair people with um, people that would make sense to what they're interested in doing. So, for example, uh, you know, if you're interested in creating a fictional podcast, we might get somebody that's worked on RN Fictions, which is an amazing, you know, fiction podcast that's just been created. Or if you're really interested in working on, uh, you know, like more of a sound art kind of bent, maybe we get somebody that's, a, you know, an audio artist first and foremost. And there's very much scope to be able to like work one-on-one with participants to, yeah, find the right person. Because I, I sometimes feel like finding the right mentor is almost like, yeah, finding the right, like, lover in a weird way you know like you really want to get it right you want to be able to trust each other you want it to be a safe space to learn in so yeah it's very much uh, tailored to the individual and, and what they're interested in and what they want to get out of it and are these are these mentorship um seminars or like meetings are they all held at the wheeler center or is it like a um you connect the people and they uh handle it from there so the intensive workshops, you know, initially were going to be held at the Wheeler Centre. Well, well, partly because it is a national program, so anybody that's you know, in Australia can apply for this program. Um, so this year, it's it, you know, because of the current situation that we're living in, it is going to predominantly be online. And so we'll have the workshops online, but then with the tailored mentorship that is outside of those workshops, so people will be able to. Um, work with their mentors at a, you know at the pace that is appropriate for the project that they're working on, but they'll have you know guidance from us in, in terms of how those kind of mentorships are, are structured. Fantastic, uh, Beth. I'm kind of interested in uh, obviously this is a, 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 an area 
you believe really strongly about and are very passionate about. Have you um, seen much of a, a, an arc or change in what people want to talk about or, or how they make uh, podcasts in, in your time being involved in them or, or even in your time in radio as well? Hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I'm just thinking about, you know, all of the stuff that's been happening recently and you know in the last kind of week or so with George Floyd and people's um you know appetite for being able to better understand race relations and there's a podcast that's done by Rennie Edo Lodge who's the author of um uh so I'm no longer talking why well, I'm no longer talking to white people about race and that's just kind of um shot up in the you know iTunes charts or you know other podcasting charts and I just mm. think about how people are you know, using podcasts in a way that I don't think perhaps they were 10 years ago. Like maybe people didn't see that as the best way to educate yourself. But now I feel like it is, you know, becoming increasingly something that people lean on to educate themselves, to entertain themselves, to, you know, inform themselves on things that are that are happening. And, and there's so many excellent podcasts out there as well. Like we are almost spoilt for choice in many ways. Um, but yeah, I definitely think that there's um, an uptake in, you, you know, I feel like there's this study that was done that was just like the, if you start listening to podcasts, like the more that you listen to podcasts, the more that you're likely to listen to other podcasts and kind of identify that as like a means of accessing information um, in, in like a similar way that I think that people that listen to Triple R are like, I'm a Triple R listener, like it becomes very much a part of how they identify and how they see themselves. And I kind of think that there's a little bit of that in, in terms of podcasting as well. I saw a, uh, a meme uh, the other day where um, I think a guy got a nose job and he was just a little bit older. And then someone was like, what happened to you, man? You used to look like a Greek god. Now you look like you listen to podcasts. Oh, um, it was a little bit, it was a little bit sad, but um, yeah, I, 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 I kind of feel like it could go on an upward trajectory for a long time and still um, not um, bottom out or kind of find a, a, a kind of terrible place in culture. Um, it kind of feels like it's been a, a, a latent kind of medium that uh, has just been looking for its moment and, and certainly the current circumstances uh, have really pushed that on. I, I guess I do have to ask as well, are, are there any kind of local um, uh, kind of um, golden podcasts that we should be checking out or having a listen to um, if you've had a chance to, to sort of check in on them in the past six months? Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, a podcast that I have recently been listening to is Bird's Eye View, which is uh, a podcast that's made by Story Projects and the NT, and it's a podcast that's created with, uh, I think it's 40 currently incarcerated women um, in the Darwin Correctional Centre, and it really gives you this really intimate perspective in, in into what their lives are like, and that's like a storytelling project that I know was created over two years, and it was a very collaborative process. So I'm very much interested in like the way that it was made as, as well as the content, but I would highly recommend checking that out. I think it's really, um, really interesting. And, and then I suppose something that's kind of completely different is um, Constellations, which is um, a podcast that's kind of made between Melbourne and uh, Canada. The, the two co-creators are, you know, they, they're both Canadian, but one of them lives here now and, they refer to their work as audio ephemera and it's this audio initiative that really experiments with the form of, of what a podcast is and, it, you know, they have episodes that kind of vary from anything 
that could be, you know, audio art or non-linear storytelling and soundscapes and, you know, sometimes fiction. And, yeah, I'm just absolutely loving kind of going through their back catalogue because a lot of it feels quite timeless. And, yeah, it's kind of fun to find something that you like and just kind of dive into what they've been doing for, for the last couple yeah. of years. For sure. Great. Well, God, I um, really hope that we start to um, unearth some more voices that we might not have necessarily heard from through this. Um, how do, where do people go to apply? Yeah, so people head over to uh, the Wheeler Centre website. Um, it's it's literally on the front page. It's called Signal Boost. Um, but, yeah, I would, I would just highly encourage anybody that is enthusiastic or excited about this medium to apply because, you know, it is, it is open to everybody. People don't have to have uh, experience. Um, we just are really looking for people that are, you know, excited by the medium and, and have kind of interesting and creative ideas and, and want to work with us. And when do applications close, Beth? Uh, applications are open now and they close on Wednesday the 17th of June. So you've got a couple of weeks. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for that, Beth. Thank you for having me. Uh, no problem. All right. Triple R. Um, we've had a fantastic show tonight. We had uh, we interviewed uh, Chris Bain from Monash University about uh, tele tech health, so health uh, uh, being diagnosed over over the internet and other ways to help in these med- medically trying times. And just then we heard from Beth AQ about the. Uh, program held at the Wheeler Centre called Signal Boost for up-and-coming podcasters, even if you're not uh, trained in any audio, um, uh, you're encouraged to apply. So head over to the Wheeler Centre to apply if you've got a great podcast idea, but maybe don't have the know-how. Well, yeah, I I reckon that's it. I reckon we've got Anthony Carew coming up with the International Underground, so um, stick around for that. But, um, yeah, thanks, Dan. Thanks, Joe. It was uh, a fun show. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts. 